the Buddha taught the Dharma. And the Dharma, as I mentioned last night, is the truth or the way things are or the way it is. When we undertake the practice of the Dharma, as we are doing here, we do those things, we undertake those behaviors, the trainings, the renunciation, the reflections, exercise the restraint that aligns our hearts and minds with the Dharma with the way things are. To live aligned with the truth leads to the happiness of peace. To struggle with the way things are. To live in fear of the way things are. To deny the way things are. Or to cling to the way things are leads to unhappiness. It is vitally important in our lives that we come to some understanding of the Dharma so that we can live in some alignment with it. So how can we establish our life in the Dhamma? How can we establish our life in the truth? Can we live with the way things are? It said when the Buddha spoke to his students, monks and nuns, laymen and laywomen, that he had the capacity to speak in such a way that what he said could be heard intimately and directly by every one of the listeners. don't uh, even hope for such capacity, but I will try to follow how I understand what the Buddha spoke about establishing your life, our life, in the Dhamma. He said there are three pillars to support you in the Dhamma. And these three pillars are three practices, or three understandings, really. The practice and the understanding of dana, or generosity. The practice and the understanding of sila, or ethical living. And the practice and training of bhavana, or development of mind. And he understood, and he taught that Each of these three is essential to establish a life aligned with the truth that leads to the highest happiness of peace. As the Dharma has come to the West, as the teachings of the Buddha have slowly been carried here by Westerners who've gone to Asia and practiced by Asian teachers who've come to the States and and taught. Primarily and initially, the interest has been in mental development, bhavana, meditation, really, Zen sashins, insight or mindfulness retreats. And for many years, this has been the, the vehicle really for carrying the teachings of the Buddha. 
what we are seeing individually and collectively in ourselves and long-term students is that it is possible to develop the mind through um, different meditative technique. But that isn't enough to establish a life aligned with the truth. It takes more than that. Carol Wilson, a friend and colleague, um, isn't writing a book, but if she does, the title will be (laughs) Mindfulness is Not Enough. And I think that might come as a shock to some of us because we put so much effort and energy and uh, enthusiasm really into our practice thinking that this is really what's needed and maybe only what's needed. But when the Buddha taught, he gave what is understood to be a progressive uh, Dharma talk. He would speak about the most basic understanding first. The basic understanding of how to be just minimally happy. And that's through the practice of generosity. And he would talk about it, and he would talk about the benefits of being generous. And he would also talk about and point out the limitations of generosity, or what generosity could not do. And then he would move on to uh, the next topic, sila, or ethical conduct, and talk about how to practice that, the benefits of it, and the limitations of that. And he would go on um, progressively through the different trainings that he taught until he reached insight practice, which is where we start. And so, in some ways, our practice of insight may not have the support or the foundation to, and necessary to live a life of deep insight. So tonight I want to speak about the three pillars of the Dharma as a way of laying a foundation and uh, building up some support for the work of insight that we're doing here. These three pillars, dana, generosity, sila, ethical conduct, bhavana, mental development, acknowledge two truths. The first is that we are all connected. We're all related. We're all we all are woven into this vast web of life. And whatever any one of us does ultimately affects every other one. That's an understanding that is not obvious and and may be hard to see in some situations, but in practice, we do come to understand it more intimately. But the second truth that these three trainings and three pillars of the Dharma rests on is that all happiness comes from letting go. True, sincere, deep, and subtle happiness comes not from acquiring, hanging on, getting more for oneself to enjoy alone, but really from letting go. So I want to speak about how these practices acknowledge our interdependence and point to the wisdom of letting go as the vehicle for being happy. first is the gift of giving, or dana, generosity. 
I mentioned last night that I went to Asia in mid-80s, and I thought that I might be there for a year or so practicing, and after five years, I finally decided to come home or come back to the States. And just before I decided to come back, two Burmese women came to see me at the monastery, and they said they'd like me to meet their Sayadaw. And a Sayadaw in Burma is a teacher, it's a monk, usually an elder monk, um, who was their family, uh, family priest, if you will, a family meditation instructor, therapist, counselor, guide, and uh, all-around uh, advisor to the family. I had met many Sayadars in my time there, and I wasn't really uh, particularly interested in meeting one more. Um, but there was something pretty insistent uh, from these two women, so I agreed. And the appointed day came, and they came to pick me up in the, uh, a taxi. And on the way to his monastery, they told me about him, that this monk many years ago had been a scholar, a well-known scholar in, in Rangoon. And when this meditation center first opened, the Mahasi Sayadaw asked this monk to come and teach meditation there. So he did. And he was a very skillful teacher, and he became very popular, and a lot of people came to the meditation center to practice. And as time went on over the first couple of years, the, the, the numbers of people coming to this meditation center just grew phenomenally. And it got to be, uh, as all growing organizations do, uh, an administrative and organizational headache or nightmare. And uh, this monk was not particularly interested in that kind of life, and so he went to his teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw, and said, you know, this isn't really what I'd like to do. I'd like to be doing my own practice. And Mahasi, and he said, uh, I'd like to uh, leave, stop teaching here, and leave and go on my own to finish my own practice. And Mahasi Sayadaw said no. So he continued to teach, and uh, the meditation center grew more and more. Thousands of people were coming. And uh, after a few more years, it was even bigger, more uh, administrative work. And uh, the, the, this monk went to his teacher again and said, this is, uh, I would prefer to be doing my own practice somewhere in solitude, and uh, may I leave? And Mahasim Saidar again said no. So he continued to teach, and after 10 years, he went to Mahasi Sayadaw again for the third time, and there's something magical about the third time in all Buddhist stories. Uh, he went to Mahasi and, and again acknowledged his appreciation for the teaching and the opportunity to teach, but that he would really like to leave and do his own practice, and Mahasi said, okay. So he went to, he left the monastery, he went to the edge of Rangoon, where Rangoon then met the jungle, uh, in a place called North Okalapa. He found a cave, he went in the cave to do his own practice. So, as monks do, he would walk in the, into the nearby suburb or village to get his alms in the morning and then go back to his cave and practice. Well, it didn't take long before the people that knew him to be a good teacher and a, and a good monk and a good teacher uh, came to see him and asked for the teachings. So he said, okay. And uh, they would, after work, they'd come by his cave and he would give some teaching, and they would sit and practice. Well, he'd been in the cave or out of the monastery now for 30 years when I was going to see him. Now, he has a little, maybe two, maybe three acre piece of jungle, four, I mean, just, just trees and a couple of cabins, in this huge suburban sprawl. And they explained to me that he was so committed to his practice, he was just interested in doing his practice, and uh, he was 
but he was also compassionate enough to share his understanding, his teaching with those who came to ask. And that whole suburb was people that had come to practice with him. And they would work during the day, they'd come to see him at night, they'd sit and walk, and he'd give a Dharma talk and some instruction, and he would do his practice during the day, and they'd go to work and come back. And this is the way it had gone for 30 years. And uh, he didn't allow them to build him a big monastery, just a, a simple cabin for himself and a couple of other monks, and uh, a big dining room for, you know, when the monks uh, get their meals and when the visitors, when the lay people are, have a festival or whatever. And also in this monastery, there was a, a dormitory for elderly women, which seemed to uh, gravitate to the monasteries when they when they're finished with their uh, household and uh, household responsibilities. And so he had uh, taken care of his own practice, and he'd taken care of this whole community of people being willing to share his understanding, his time, his knowledge with them. And they, in turn, supported him by carving out this little piece of the jungle and building him a, uh, a small cabin and supporting him with, for his daily uh, alms, meal, whatever he needed to, to live. And to me, this is a, uh, a very beautiful story of the power of freely sharing what you have with others, the power of generosity. Without any expectation, without any demands, without any coercion, without any obligation, just out of a heartfelt wish to be happy and to support others in their happiness, in sharing our lives, this is what's possible. What's interesting also is to understand that Burma, as you know, is one of the poorest countries on earth now. It needn't be. I mean, it actually has a lot of uh, wealth, but uh, through mismanagement and misgovernment and a lot of uh, non-generosity, a few people have all the wealth and most people in Burma live on, you know, uh, a couple of hundred dollars a year. And yet, the Burmese people, it's said or understood, uh, share or donate between a quarter and a third of their income with monks and nuns and temples and monasteries, schools for uh, young monks and young nuns. Because they so value having uh, what the monks and nuns, or having the Dharma in their life, and for as little as they have economically, and for the severe deprivation and the, the intolerable economic conditions that they live with, the Burmese people are really happy. In a, in a magical and notable way, when you're in Burma, you see how happy they are with so little. And you have to ask why. In part because they have the Dharma in their life. They have a firmly established lifestyle of living the Dharma, including being very generous. The practice of freely offering what you have to support others in whatever way you can, in whatever way they need, requires, obviously, letting go. But it also rests on the understanding that we are connected, we are related, we, we, are, we, can't, uh, we can't acquire somehow our happiness at the expense of others.
is not possible. We can't be happy living in a, in a field of unhappy people. It's not possible, no matter what you have, what you do, how isolated you want to try to make yourself. That's not the source of happiness. Happiness is that open acknowledgement of the connection with all other beings, and then doing what you can to also see that they are happy. Generosity or the practicing of giving is a direct challenge to our self-preoccupation, our uh, habit of taking care of ourselves, getting more for ourselves, enjoying for ourselves, keeping for ourselves, as believing that this is the way to be happy. And generosity is a direct confront to that because it's the initial movement of the heart to connect with others and to let go of some of our self-absorption. I don't remember who it is right now, I'm sorry, but um, someone said that, you know, I think it was Albert Schweitzer. He says, I don't know what each of you will do in your life, but those of you who find an effective way to serve others will be the ones who are happy. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know, the resultant benefit of sharing, they wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing it with someone, if there was anyone there to share it with. Not a single meal would he let go by without sharing it with someone. Because the power of generosity is immense. Not only is the person who receives, or the being who receives, the gift happy, the giver is also happy. The best way, if you're feeling in the dumps, you're feeling depressed, you're feeling angry, you're feeling unhappy for whatever reason, the surest and quickest and easiest way to get some relief is to give somebody something, anything and you'll feel better for it. If generosity is a source of happiness, why do we find it so difficult to be generous, to be freely uh, open with our time, with our knowledge, with our skills with our material resources. Why is it so difficult? Fear. Fear of not having enough for ourselves. Fear of um, being taken advantage of. Fear of, um, or maybe the belief that my little bit or my little contribution isn't going to solve the problem. I really can't change this person who's needy. Maybe we don't understand even that generosity is a source of happiness. Maybe we don't even see the opportunities. You know, we live in such a wealthy country. Who, who needs what, really? But there are among us, you know, and I'm sure you have them in Durango and other cities and towns where you come from, you know, the homeless and the the destitute of one sort or another. And we see them in our life. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to avoid them, really. But how do you feel when you have that opportunity? When you see, you know, someone standing on the corner with, you know, the sign, you know, whatever it is that, that's requesting your help, requesting something from you,
a connection, some financial support? How do you feel? Like, what can I do? Resignation? Do you feel excited about the possibility of being happy? Because now you've got the opportunity to make someone happy and you'll be happy? That's not, that's not usually our first reaction. It's obvious that generosity benefits the one who receives. The one who receives whatever gift they receive enjoys the benefit of the gift, but also enjoys uh, the connection with the other person, a sense of being cared for, a sense of being loved. But the donor, the one who's generous, also benefits. It's said there's five benefits for those who practice generosity. And the first is that they'll be loved by many. They have the affection of many people. Do you dislike generous people? (laughs) Not usually. But people who aren't generous, you know, and could be easily, hmm, what do we feel about them? There was a monk in the monastery where I stayed who was the most popular of the teaching monks uh, at the time that I was there. And his name was Usatila. And he was just the most lovable, the lovable monk, if you can have such a thing. <laughs> a lovable monk. And he was extraordinarily generous. He was just known to be a very generous person. Not that he had a lot of resources, but just he was. And at one point in my stay there, he asked if I he asked me if I would teach him English. And he knew a little bit of English. He actually knew quite a lot of English. He just wanted a little more practice speaking. So I agreed, and each evening I would go to his cabin, and we would talk for an hour, an hour and a half. And I did this for, I don't know, maybe half a year six months. Every time, every time, not without fail, before I would leave, he would offer me something. Every time. It might only be a pen, a notebook, a a pencil, a soft drink, whatever. But sometimes it was, you know, robes and and other things that monks uh, can, can, can have. But every time, It's also said that those who are generous get to associate with noble beings. Because in being generous, you you can, if you're offering to monks or nuns or teachers or temples or the Dalai Lama or whoever, whoever it is, then you get to spend time. You get to hear the teachings. You get to uh, some personal guidance, if you will, if you wish. Also, it's said that the one who's generous enjoys a good reputation, can be in um, uh, any crowd, or can can participate in any group without self, uh, without that, uh, with a lot of self-confidence. It's also said that, and uh, this is where we uh, we may or may not believe this. It also said that. Those who are generous have a good rebirth. And there are just many, many, many stories in the Buddhist text of the Buddha explaining to someone who's inquiring, a monk or a nun who's inquiring, uh, why is so-and-so enjoying you know, the kind of life that they're enjoying now? You know, they have a good health, or they have a, you know, a long life, or they're, they're a good yogi, or whatever it is. And, and the Buddha would inevitably tell a story of in some past lifetime, you know, they offered a flower to a monk, or they offered a single spoonful of rice to uh, someone. And as a result of that, uh, good conditions 
in their future or in their subsequent life. Uh, we don't have to believe that. And a lot of us don't really know how to understand uh, lives and past lives and future lives if there are such a thing. But just as a possibility, even in this lifetime, think, if we're generous in this moment, if we, if, we, if we make an effort to be kind, to be generous, to share what we have, every time we think of it, every time we remember what we've done, we're happy again. Every time. That's like a rebirth of that happiness, isn't it? It's like, so, the more generous you are, the more you remember it, the happier you'll be. It almost sounds too simplistic, doesn't it? It's like, this can't be so. This is too simple. It's not complicated enough. What constitutes giving, sharing, generosity? It really takes place in the heart. Having the intention to share, having the intention to let go of your attachment to something. And the purer the intention, the purer the giving. Giving is not so much uh, based on what you give or how much you give. It's really based on, or the result of, or the benefit of the giving is, how pure is your giving? How free are you of what you're giving? And how sincere is your wish for the others to be happy? That's the determinant of the value or of the karmic effect, if you will, of the giving. Each of us is contributing to this retreat. I'm offering the teachings. All of you are doing some yogi jobs, offering some of the financial support to, to uh, have this retreat, the organizational skills. And together, we share our what we're able to share in order to create this opportunity. We get to practice the Dharma, and then we get to take that home. The greatest gift, the Buddha said, is the gift of the Dharma. As you learn to live, to acknowledge and to learn to live aligned with the truth, you give others that gift. The truth. The truth of your life. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to others. So this is the gift of giving, one of the pillars or the foundations for living a life aligned with the truth, the deepest truth of the way things are, that we are all connected. Our happiness is dependent on the happiness of all others. The second pillar of the Dharma is sila or living a life with heart, living a life with care, consideration, respect for others. Jack calls it walking the path with heart. When we opened the retreat, we took the precepts, the five communal agreements that establish a um, container of safety, of uh, protection for us to do the work that we do. Those agreements, not to harm, not to steal, not to uh, act out sexually, not to, or to speak the truth, and not to um, use intoxicants. We take them because we care about ourselves and each other. We want others to know who we are, something about us, so that they can feel safe with us. 
Because we don't know. We don't know each other, really. We don't know much about each other. And yet, if we know that this person, that each other, has undertaken a training not to harm in any way, not to take anything that's not offered, not to act out sexually, not to uh, mislead through speaking, and to not to abuse uh, uh, mind-altering substances. that's That's a very respectful and powerful foundation for our community. And we really have created a community here that um, is really based on that respect, that care, that love of each other, so that the other, so that we and the other can feel safe. Imagine if we were not encouraged to exercise restraint. Any thought that comes through your mind, act on it. Any desire, act on it. No restraint. It would be chaotic. And you, you, you wouldn't know what was coming at you next. You can only imagine. And in our society at large, there's not a, a universal agreement on these, uh, these understandings. And so we live with a lot of fear. We live with a lot of um, suspicion. We live not knowing if we can trust one another. And that takes a toll on our heart, on our mind. We close down. We defend ourselves. And in that closing and defending, we cease to know ourselves carefully, sensitively, deeply. It's an awful price to pay. But we do. This is the conditioned culture that we live in. And when we can get an opportunity like this, even for a few days, to try to create a harmonious community and to open up a little bit, we see how extraordinarily difficult it is to trust, to, to give the other the benefit of the doubt, to feel safe. Extraordinarily difficult. The precepts are, uh, as, as, as understood in, in Burma and in Buddhist countries, they're the minimum requirements for humanity. Minimum daily requirement, really, is to keep the precepts. If you want to be human, it's your minimum requirement. <clears throat> but these all rest on two qualities of mind, or two qualities of heart, which are called, in the Buddha's teachings, the guardians of the world. They're called the guardians of the world because they protect the world from just falling into chaos. And these two are modesty and conscience. Modesty is having a sense, knowing yourself, what makes your heart contract and what makes your heart stay open. Feeling it. Not, not, not thinking it, but feeling in each moment what behavior of yourself or others makes your heart contract and what allows your heart to stay open. Without that, without that deeply felt sense of your own heart, what's to guide you? What's to guide us in our life? Are we going to believe Washington, Hollywood, Wall Street? I don't think so. I hope not. Are we going to believe our thoughts? 
our beliefs that we got from who? The Buddha pointed to our own heart. If you really want to know where suffering and the truth lies, you have to look at your own heart. You have to feel your way in each situation. Is this that I'm doing causing my heart to close down or open up? Is this that I'm saying or this that I'm hearing causing my heart to contract or stay open? That's modesty. That's having a sense of really feeling your way into what's right and what's wrong. What conduces to openness and happiness and harmony and what conduces to closeness, contraction, disharmony. Only we can know for ourselves. And the only way to know for ourselves is to pay very careful attention. That's the only way. Conscience is the sensitivity to what others are feeling, what others consider to be uh, right and wrong, or skillful or unskillful, if you will. You know, that we teachers often get asked about spiritual community, or uh, being connected with a teacher, or uh, having a, a sangha. We all already have our sangha. Consider in your life, who is it that you care about how they think of you? You know, there's a lot of people in your life you don't care, really, what they think about you. But there are some people that you really do care what they think about you. That's your sangha. That's your sangha. That's the people that you care how you appear to them. You, 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 you want to protect your relationship with them. You want, you, it's not that you want to deceive them and just appear to be la-di-da, but it's because you care about them, how they <coughs> feel about you. And it's through recognizing that that we then uh, act uh, in ways that preserve the harmony of that relationship. The Bodhisattva, of course, takes everyone as being in their Sangha. They care about everyone. But if we can just care about one other person, that's a good beginning. I was giving a, I was preparing a talk once on, um, a few years ago, on right speech. We speak a lot. Uh, we've all been hurt by words said carelessly or um, said with the intent to hurt. And we probably have all hurt others through speaking carelessly or at the wrong time. And so I was looking through the uh, rules that monks live by. Monks uh, live by 227 rules. And uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, sub-rules. They say there's more than 90,000 million rules that monks live by. But anyway, there's a lot. And uh, I was looking at how many of them have to do with speaking. There are more rules for speaking than any other topic. And I think I, I, it, it made me consider why, why is that so? And uh, first, maybe because it's so easy to be careless, to be unmindful while speaking, and because the harmony in community is the foundation for our practice in the monastic community. That's the whole idea of being a monk or nun, is to live in a community that supports practice. So if we want to live in a sangha, if we want to acknowledge a group, a community, a, 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 a support in our practice, 
right speech is a, is a practice to be undertaken. Better than a thousand hollow words is one word that brings peace. The Buddha said, of modesty, conscience, care for others, respect others, feelings, wish to preserve the harmony, the safety in our communities, then we protect ourselves from blame, from punishment, from remorse. And a life free of these things tends towards happiness. Can you imagine living in a safe community, in harmony with others, openly. It would be tremendous. It would just be... Don't we all want that? I mean, if we can imagine that it's possible, wouldn't you want that? And yet, you can't buy it. You, you, You can't live, you can't go someplace and find it. You can't buy it. It's not for sale. You can only create it through your own heart. Lama Yeshe was a Tibetan teacher of many Westerners. He says, if you want to be really, really happy, it isn't enough just to space out in meditation. Many people who have spent years alone in meditation have finished up the worst for it. Coming back to society, they have freaked out. They haven't been able to take contact with other people again. All of the difficulties in our interpersonal relationships comes from not having loving kindness, which is the essence of the Bodhisattva. Loving kindness creates space in your mind. Your human relationships are not for chocolate, not for sensory pleasures only. Something much deeper can come from our being together, from our working together. And then, the more you are involved with people, the more pleasure you get. People then become the resource or the source of your pleasure. You are living for them. And then no matter where you go, you'll never freak out. (laughs) So just be practical, he says. If you can't help others, at least don't bother them. We should be so lucky to be able to uh, just not bother people. The gift of generosity, path with heart. The third foundation or the third pillar for establishing a life aligned with the truth is mental development, bhavana. When the Buddha spoke of developing the mind, he spoke of something very different than what we in the West how we in the West understand developing the mind. We have this understanding that to develop the mind, you go to school. Or you take a graduate course, you take a workshop, you learn something. And you develop the mind through acquiring that kind of knowledge. Well, the Buddha had another idea for developing the mind. And essentially it involves two things, two movements in the mind. And the first is tranquilizing the mind. Developing the power of mind through tranquility. Calming the mind down. You know, getting a handle on your stress, your anxiety, your the spin of your life. Developing a mind that can slow down the spin tranquilizing the mind, first step. And the second step is to see deeply into the way things are, insight, so that we can uh, correct our misperceptions of the world. Bhavana. 
powerful support for generosity if we understand the benefit of generosity. Bhavana leads us to that understanding. If we can practice sila, or if we practice living in harmony with one another, it is a powerful support for the growth of understanding bhavana. Generosity, ethical conduct, bhavana, they support each other. Here, we're primarily practicing bhavana, training the mind to calm down and see things clearly. It takes, as you have no doubt discovered, tremendous patience. Mm. Tremendous patience. Why? Because the habits of our mind are so strong. Unbelievably powerful forces in the mind move us around, jerk us around. Fear, desire, loneliness, boredom, just to name a few, are powerful forces that, if we're not aware of them, will lead us astray. They'll lead us wherever we are not interested in going, even. How do we get a handle on these forces in the mind? You can't control them. You can't just say, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be impatient. I'm not going to be bored. I'm not going to be lonely. Good luck. It doesn't happen that way, as you know. And these forces, they come just seemingly for no apparent reason. And we have to suffer with them. My teacher Upandita used to say, nothing is accomplished without patience. You can't be in a hurry in this practice. You can't be. If you're in a hurry, you go backwards. You know the story of this very enthusiastic young uh, novice came to the monastery and he says to the master, he says, I'm really into it. I want to get this uh, enlightenment stuff. So. How long is it going to take? And the master says, 10 years. And the young novice says, 10 years? Oh my God. What if I work double time? And I really work hard, study all the time and practice. And the master says, mm, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and the young novice says, hey, wait. I'm going to do it all the time, day and night. I'm not going to rest. I'm going to work really diligently, never stop. How long will it take? 30 years. And the novice says, well, how come? What, 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 I, I'm going to work harder and it's going to take longer. And the Master says, with one eye on the goal, you've only got one eye to find the path. <laughs> so let go of the goal. Let go of being in a hurry. The path is right here, this moment. Can we be patient? Can we be tolerant? Can we be at ease? with the way things are right now. Not next year, not next life, not tomorrow. Just right now, can we? That's our task. That's development of mind. And you can see how uh, to get to that place, there has to be some tranquility and some clarity to see things as they are. This is development of mind. This is what the Buddha understood as the development of mind. And he said in the Dhammapada, a collection of verses of the Buddha, that the mind is the forerunner of all of our condition. All of our happiness, all of our unhappiness is a result of the mind, not what we have or what we do. He says, if one speaks and acts, with an impure mind, then unhappiness, pain, will follow him just as the wheel of the cart follows the hoof of the ox that pulls it. On the other hand, if 
one speaks and acts with a pure mind, then happiness follows one, just as a shadow that never leaves. Part of our practice here is to purify the mind. Purify the mind of the uh, hindering qualities, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, desire, aversion, irritation, frustration, impatience, so that we then can see clearly, so that we can purify our understanding of the way things are. These two practices, to tranquilize the mind, a practice, concentration practice, and to see clearly is insight practice. I mentioned today earlier the difference between them. They're both necessary. The Buddha praised those who practice tranquility and insight. These three trainings, generosity, ethical conduct, mental development, they're training, they take practice. It's not a matter of belief. Like, I believe in being happy. I believe in being generous. I believe in development in mind. That doesn't do it. It's a matter of practicing generosity, practicing respectful relationships, practicing developing the mind that will lead our lives to alignment with the way things are. What we do here is practice. We practice living in a harmonious community. And it may not be easy. You know, somebody cuts in front of you in the lunch line, somebody's noisy in the meditation hall. You know, it's not easy being friends with everyone. So we practice that. We practice also uh, being generous, offering our support to the retreat doing our yogi job, even if we don't want to, ringing the bell, even when we don't want to, coming to sit, even when we feel like doing something else, and developing the mind, sitting and walking with sincere you know, uh, intention, energy, as much as we can. Trungpa Rinpoche, some of you know, also a great Tibetan teacher, wrote this poem called Afterthought. Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sold or bought by anyone. A mutual understanding keeps the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified. Sometimes it is smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.